Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Plain. Make It Plain. M.I.P. With Massimella Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. All right, folks. Things may be looking better for the Biden-Harris ticket, but it's not over yet until all the votes are counted. Meanwhile, as... The tally changes hour by hour, so to speak. Thought it would be a good opportunity to chat with our friend Jonathan Alter and discuss his new book. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today on Make It Plain is a dear friend. He's an award-winning author, columnist, documentary filmmaker, an MSNBC political analyst, and former senior editor at Newsweek. He's the author of three New York Times bestsellers, The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies, The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. Of course, today we're going to talk about his latest book about Jimmy Carter. And he told me, um, he's told me, I guess, a few years ago that this this was a project of his, um, a great piece. His very best about Jimmy Carter. Jonathan Alter joins us once again on Make It Plain. Hey, buddy, how are you? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you doing? Just fine. Uh, You and the family been okay in this pandemic? We've been okay. Uh, Apologies for I'm in the car in the passenger seat. Uh, You hear uh, car noise there. Um, We've been okay. Uh, Our daughter, Charlotte, who is journalist and author, she got COVID uh, over the summer, but she handled it just fine. And uh, everybody else is good, especially in comparison to a lot of the suffering that is underway in the United States. And, you know, I'm when you ask me how I am, I'm I'm I said, great. The truth is, I'm I'm very anxious about this election. I, I don't think it's in the bag. And I think uh, 
democracy is truly on the line. It's the most important election since 1864, when uh, if Lincoln had lost, uh, the uh, his opponent, General McClellan, would have made a uh, made peace with the South and Confederacy would have had its own uh, slave republic. So, you know, democracy has not been on the line since 1864 as it is in this election, because I think Trump would be a full on uh, authoritarian. And uh, what we saw in the first term would be nothing uh, should he get reelected. And there's some things that are, are scaring me. Uh, I'm not I'm not at all complacent about this election. So other than that, I'm doing well. Well, since you mentioned that, Jonathan, tell us specifically what's scaring you. Uh, well, um, you know, Joe Biden has been doing well and he has uh, Trump on the defensive in in some states like, you know, uh, North North Carolina, Georgia. Uh, you know, who would have thought that Trump would be having a campaign in Georgia and Florida? But, you know, my feeling about those states is I'll believe it when I see it. Like my instinct still tells me that Trump will carry those states. And if Trump can make a comeback and he's he's you know, he's not down by that much in Pennsylvania. If he can make a comeback there where there are 200,000 new uh, registered voters in Pennsylvania who are registered as Republicans, uh, if he makes a comeback there, he slips back into the president presidency even though he will unquestionably lose the popular vote. So he does still have a narrow path to the White House that leads through Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, if there is not, I mean, what happened the last time is that, you know, Democrats in the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia area, they just didn't get out to vote. And so the, uh, you know, the crackers in the middle of Pennsylvania, they voted overwhelmingly for for Trump. Now you have to realize that Pennsylvania, as James Carville, who was you know Bill Clinton's main guy, as he uh, said in 1992, he had gotten a Democrat elected to the Senate in Pennsylvania, so he knew the state really well. He said, "Carville's from Louisiana." He said, "Pennsylvania has Pittsburgh on one side, Philadelphia on the other, and it's Alabama in the middle." Mm. And and that is true to this day. So if you don't have big black turnout in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, you don't carry Pennsylvania, yeah. especially with 200,000 new Republicans. So I am really concerned, not just with African-American turnout, but also with turnout in the suburbs, which are trending Democratic. That's Biden's big hope. But they have those suburban suburbanites, you know, some of whom are coming over from the Republican Party, some of whom have been Democrats for a long time. They have to come out. They have to come out in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. If they don't, you know, Trump is rolling up 75 percent margins in these rural counties. My daughter, Charlotte, was out there covering them for Time magazine. She came back very, uh, very struck by how strong Trump support was in the middle of Pennsylvania. Mm, mm, you know, mm. Nobody was peeling off that she could see. So, um, so it's, you know, it's still a, anybody who's complacent about this or feels like 
You know, they're seeing numbers that tell them this is in the bag. They just don't know politics. But I would say, Mark, that the odds of a landslide are greater, a Biden landslide, are greater than the odds of a Trump victory. So there is a bigger chance that this is a great night for Democrats than there is that it's a horrible night for Democrats. But there still remains. I mean, when when uh, Nate Silver says 15 percent chance of a Trump victory, that that feels about right to me. And that is too big of a chance for comfort. Way too big. You know, when I heard the story this morning about a surge in GOP registrations, Jonathan, and, and you know, obviously you and I think alike. Um it troubled me, too, because I remember when Democrats and this really got going with the Jackson campaigns, Democrats were always known for registering their voters right. and specifically registering the margin of victory. And it just seems like I'm afraid that they Democrats may have gotten away from that. You might well be right. You put your finger on what the big issue is. And. uh you know, uh, because uh, because of COVID, Democrats didn't get out there and do a lot of new registration. Uh, and so just staying on Pennsylvania for a second, um, you know, it, it, again, Democrats can win if the, the folks who are already registered come out. I mean, I, I remember in 19, in uh, 2012, uh, when uh, Romney you know, actually thought into election day that he was going to be the next president. And his people were telling me, you know, privately, there's there's a there's a big there's a big white wave coming in Pennsylvania. Romney's going to carry Pennsylvania right. and he's he's going to win. So I called up a Michael Nutter, who was the mayor of Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, I was able actually able to get. Uh, no, I got one of his people on the phone. And uh, and this guy says to me, um, I'll tell you what the mayor says when he heard this white wave thing. He said, there's a wave coming. It's a big black wave and it is going to reelect Barack Obama. Mm. And, you know, everybody all over Philadelphia is going to come out and vote for Obama. And that turned out to be true. So but I don't know whether the combination of the, you know, of the. Just horrific Trump presidency, Kamala Harris on the ticket, and, uh, you know, uh, a sense that the most loyal Democratic voters of all are African-American women. I don't know whether the combination of that will lead to the turnout numbers. The The Georgia experience so far is pretty encouraging. Yeah. Our people are waiting in line yeah. all day. They They are not going to be deterred. And the other thing that Nutter's uh, uh, person told me that really stuck with me uh, uh, was, and again, this was Mayor Nutter's analysis, is that when there's voter suppression, it actually drives black turnout. And that people go, you think you're going to take away my right to vote? You think you're going to pull this shit? You know, yeah. I, I'll vote if it's the last thing I do, yeah. you know, and they remember their grandparents and all the struggles 
And so all of this voter suppression and all the publicity of it, we may find, and Nutter felt this was the case in 2012. When I wrote my second book about Obama, I had a whole chapter on voter suppression in 2012. Right, And that was when the issue was just starting. But even then, it got a lot of publicity, and it caused this reaction. And I do sense that that's happening this time, too. Like, all over the country, people are going, you're going to repress the vote? Nice try. Mm. Yeah, no, that's right. No, you're right. It's very similar to 2012. So, um, uh, his very best, Jimmy Carter, alike. So I think I've told you, I lost my childhood innocence um, in 1980 and 1981, um, having as a small child seen the scary man on television, Richard Nixon, having seen Jimmy Carter elected, having seen him next to Daddy King. And then um, I became fully politically engaged and aware when Ronald Reagan took his hand off the Bible, Jonathan, and announced the hostages had been freed. Uh, That's when I knew the world was a little different than I thought it was. But let me ask you this. Do you see any similarities between either the election of 1976? I know you mentioned the 1860 election, but do you see any similarities between 1976 or 1980s election in today's at all? Yes. Yeah, there's there's uh, a, a few different similarities. Uh, first of all, it, you know, when you mentioned Daddy King, this is a very important part of my biography of Jimmy Carter, because uh, Daddy King, uh, at a, when Carter first ran for governor, Daddy King was against him. But then after uh, they first met and uh, when Governor Carter put up Dr. King's portrait in the uh, state capitol and then he invited Daddy King, who by that time, you know, had been an important figure in Atlanta for many years. He'd never been invited to the governor's office, not once, never been. And so when Governor Carter invited him in, Daddy King broke down in tears mm. and that, that a governor would have him there. Carter integrated Georgia state government. Daddy King gave the benediction at the 1976 convention. And then uh, a little bit earlier than that, when Carter made a gap that might have ended his campaign, Daddy King stepped in and vouched for him. And, and he was an enormously important part of uh, Carter's election. So in 76, to your question, uh, this was right after Watergate. And Jimmy Carter ran a campaign very similar to the campaign Joe Biden is running right now. Now, He was running against Gerald Ford, not Richard Nixon. But in essence, he was running against Nixon. And he said, I'll never lie to you. We need healing in this country. We need a government as good as its people. We need decency. And, you know, after Watergate, and these are all the same things that Joe Biden is using this year. And and also, in in a sense, he has a, a little bit in common with with Trump in 2016, because he came out of nowhere, you know, and uh, he, he had been governor, but, you know, he was really an outsider. When I asked him once, I interviewed him more than a dozen times. Uh, and then one of the, uh, after I'd been to his home in Plains a few times, and I was interviewing him by email. At one point I said, you know, do you have anything 
you and Donald Trump are both outsiders who got to the presidency. Do you have anything in common with Donald Trump? And Carter would answer all of my questions by email within an hour. He would like plow through all my fact checking questions, all my other questions, you know, that I had forgotten to ask him when we were in person. And in this case, you have anything in common with Donald Trump? I got a one word answer. No. And he is he is the un-Trump. And I think his decency and and intelligence and honesty and accountability for all of his flaws, for all of his failures, they can light our way back to a better kind of politics. Uh, and uh, and so that's 1976, you know, the Biden uh Carter comparison. 1980, Carter is Trump. He's an incumbent who is, you know, in danger of being swamped the way Jimmy Carter was uh, because of these events that took place in the last year of his presidency. In Carter's case, it was the Iran hostage crisis, uh, a bad economy, a failed rescue mission for the hostages. You know, in, in Trump's case, it, it, it's the coronavirus. But what's, you know, really striking to me is if Jimmy Carter were president now, we wouldn't have anywhere near 200,000 plus deaths because Carter was a planner by profession. He had actually, he wasn't just a peanut farmer. He had founded these planning commissions and he had all of these, uh, like, plans for uh, like if Three Mile Island, had, which was a nuclear plant that had a problem when he was president, that had gone south. They had this really elaborate evacuation plan. He was the first president to get the CDC into global health. He created FEMA, Jimmy Carter did. So, you know, federal emergency management, that's, that's what this is about. And Carter would have been all over this, you know, the chances of him letting it get out of control, just rank incompetence of Trump's handling of it. He, he just, he would have been a great president right now for this particular crisis. And then of course, you know, on, on race and all kinds of other issues, he, he is truly the, he is truly the, un, the un-Trump, you know, when he was losing votes because of many unpopular things he did, the only constituency that t- stayed completely loyal to him was the African-American constituency. And because of everything he's done in Africa since he left the presidency, children in Africa are named after Jimmy Carter. I mean, this is a a global humanitarian um, and who has a special connection to the black community in part because of everything he went through amid what can only be described as white terrorism in his childhood and young adulthood in Sumter County, Georgia. Mm-hmm. I, before we talk today, I reread the Malay's speech. Mm-hmm. Has history, or at the time we know it was received very harshly and, and was attacked and drugged and was one of, not one of the highlights, but reading it again today, was the time too hard on that speech and his history been too hard on that speech? Well, it's funny, you know, people remember it being a disaster. First of all, he never used the word malaise in the speech. He he talked about a crisis of confidence in the country. 
he admitted a lot of blame, which is just so different than Trump. I mean, the whole first part of the speech, he's talking about all the things, mistakes that he had made. And then a lot of the rest of it is a sermon about materialism, about how we have to understand that, you know, there are deeper things that are important to us. Then the back end of the speech was about uh, energy ideas. And he was very far sighted on energy. And you know, was the first one to uh, champion and fund renewable energy. And he would have addressed climate change in the early 1980s and been reelected. First fuel economy standards, 14 major pieces of environmental uh, uh, law, uh, legislation, plus many other things. But what's interesting, Mark, you read that speech, you go, there's no way calling for sacrifice the way he did. No politician would try to get away with this, in part because they think that the speech was a failure, but it actually was really very popular immediately after the speech. He got a really strong reaction, positive reaction, almost across the board. And then he did the dumbest thing in his whole presidency, which was he wanted to signal that he was starting anew, so he fired half of his cabinet. And like people went, what the hell? What is he doing that for? Why did he do that? And in foreign capitals, they thought, you know, did the government fall? Like, what happened? What is that about? And so his popularity, which had been down, way down that summer, because of the, there was a gas crisis where, you know, the gas stations were closed. And people's attitude toward their cars in those days was like toward their phones now. You know? They were just in love with their cars. So his numbers tumbled that summer. And they went back down again after he fired his cabinet. Then he actually recovered his popularity after uh, the hostages were seized and the invasion of Afghanistan. And, you know, he'd gone at various times. He was way higher than Trump has ever been. First year of his presidency, he was up over 70 percent popularity. And then later on, he, you know, even in 1980s, well over 50 percent. Trump's never cracked 50 percent. So this was a roller coaster ride. and also. You know, if, if issues of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, sustainability, uh, the environment, race, uh, economic justice, um, and, and if people have an interest in these issues or just the way American politics has changed, you know, a trip back to the 1970s when we had a, a decent man as president, a, a political failure, but a substantive and far-sighted success. This is like an escape from uh, Trump land. I, I think of it, Mark, as uh, comfort food for the body politic. That's what it was like for me when I was researching it. And, right. and I think the reason it's doing, the book's doing so well, you know, is not because, you know, the reviews, it's that people want a vacation Right. from what we're living through. And it's an, an inspiration in this troubled time. No, I, I, I would agree. He definitely is the anti-Trump. What ended up costing him a second term? Was it the gas crisis or the economy? Or was it the hostage crisis? Do we really know? I think it was a combination of three things. Um, so uh, exactly one year to the day 
before the 1980 election, on November 4th, 1979, these hostages were seized in Iran. And at first, everybody rallied around Carter. His popularity went way up. Uh, but then he couldn't get them out. And he refused to attack Iran. Now, he told me in one of our interviews, if I had attacked Iran, you know, I would have been reelected, right? Because, uh, But they would have killed the hostages. And he, he wasn't going to do that because he puts uh, peace and and he also realized we then would have had a, a war that would have made the Iraq war look puny by comparison because Iran's a much bigger country. So he refused to do that. Then he tried to get them out with this commando raid and that failed horribly in April of 1980. Then even right up to the election, he has some hints that maybe he can get them out and when that didn't happen, it was actually pretty close between him and Reagan. Then he, you know, uh, it, it just really disappointed the American people. All the uh, television stations ran pieces the day before the election. Oh, first year anniversary tomorrow, blindfolded hostages. So that was horrible for him. But he likes to say, you know, if you had one more helicopter for the uh, Iran rescue message, message mission, he would have been reelected. I don't think so, Mark. I think even if he gotten the hostages back, he still probably would have lost because the economy was in such bad shape. And and uh, that was partly because Carter, not Reagan, appointed this guy, Paul Volcker, to be chairman of the Fed. And Volcker ended inflation. Inflation used to be a horrible thing in this country. It ate everybody's savings. And what, what, what Volcker did is he jacked up interest rates to 19%. Can you imagine if you wanted to borrow money, getting charged 19%? And right before the election, they were at 15%. You can't win a presidential election. Interest rates are at 15%. Inflation is in double digits. Unemployment is, you know, I don't know, 6%, 7%. So he was just sailing into these gale force winds on the economy. Then, of course, after Reagan's elected, the harsh medicine of Volcker works. Inflation goes away. The economy comes back and Reagan gets reelected. So when I interviewed Volcker, you know, he basically acknowledged that he elected and reelected Reagan. But there was a third factor. So hostages, economy. The third factor was that Ted Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter in the primaries in 1980. So he did not have a unified Democratic Party. And this is something that I think if Biden is elected and he disappoints some progressives, People are going to have to think really hard about, do you make the perfect enemy of the good? And do you say, you know, we're going to run a progressive against Biden in the primary or not Biden, you know, whoever it is, Harris, you know, because they're more progressive. Democrats do that. I don't think they've done. They haven't really done it since 1980, but partly because it was so damaging. And I was honestly, I was for Kennedy. I was one of those Democrats. I was mm. out of college. I had worked as an intern for Carter. And then, like a lot of people, I go, he's not progressive enough. You know, I'm for Kennedy, which in retrospect, I was an idiot to be doing that. Like Carter was not a great president, but he was a good president in many ways that even his people didn't understand because all the bills that he was signing were ignored by the press, more interested in, you know, you know, lust in my heart, Playboy interview or killer rabbit that you know all sorts of trivia that yeah. kind of burdened carter and 
Meanwhile, there are these really important bills that were going through. He was, you know, uh, just to give you give you one example, like he completely diversified the federal government. He took uh, uh, the federal government from tokenism to true diversity, uh, both in Georgia and then in Washington. Just to give you one example, so he appointed, uh, I think it was eight black appellate court judges in four years, uh, you know, um, which is a pretty large number, right? Yeah. Ronald Reagan in eight years appointed one, mm-hmm. you know, and with women, uh, Jimmy Carter appointed more women to the federal bench, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, than all of his predecessors combined times five. Uh, and and throughout the agencies, uh, you know, you see women and and and, and black sub cabinet officials. Uh, Andy Young, who blurbed my book, uh, and uh, was his UN ambassador until he left in a, a flap. Um, you know, he uh, he said that uh, uh, that. Um, let's put it this way. He, it's hard to imagine somebody who is more admiring of a president than Andy Young is of of Jimmy Carter Mm -hmm. and especially that epic life that he had. And it didn't start out well because Dr. King and, and, and uh, a, a couple of other civil rights activists had been so badly treated at America's Georgia in, in, in Carter's, uh, right by Carter's hometown in his, in his state Senate district that Martin Luther King described the sheriff as the meanest man in the world. This guy, the sheriff chapel in the fifties and sixties, he made Bull Connor look like a nice guy. That's how bad he was. Right. So when Andy Young in 1970 first met Jimmy Carter and he said, uh, he said, oh, you're from Sumter County. Do you do you know Sheriff Chapel?" Andy says this of Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter says, Sheriff Chapel, yeah, he's he's a he's a friend of mine. And you know, Andy Young is who by this time has has met Lillian Carter, his Jimmy's mother, and other people in the family. Like he's very suspicious of Jimmy Carter at first because he was ducking the civil rights movement. But then he spent the second half of his life making up for what he did not do, not speaking out in the first half. And then Andy Young became his biggest champion, especially what he did with his human rights policy and the transformative change in the developing world that Carter helped bring. And, and plus on civil rights, of course, when he was president. So to my mind, Mark, there's this fascinating lesson for all of us in Jimmy Carter's life. Uh, especially white Americans. So he is basically silent. He's an integrationist all along from the time he's a teenager, you know, and he never, never says anything racist that anybody remembers. But he, when there's this white terrorism going on, the Klan is like spraying bullets on uh, this interracial farm. The sheriff I just mentioned is using cattle prods, literally cattle prods on 14 year old black girls. 
Jimmy Carter is mostly silent. And then after he becomes governor, he becomes the Jimmy Carter we know. And when George Floyd was murdered, Carter issued a statement saying, I've, you know, I've learned a lot traveling around the world. One of the things I've learned is that silence equals violence. And, and, and I think that the, one of the many lessons of Jimmy Carter's life is that it's never too late for a reckoning, you know, and for people to uh, recognize and speak out against racial injustice. And so he was able to, uh, to do that and make that transition when he was almost 50 years old. And then he spent the, the last, you know, nearly 50 years doing right, doing good. Yeah, yeah. Folks, the, the book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life by my friend Jonathan Alter. Check it out. Um, and An incredible story about the transformation of a man and one whom many lift up today uh, as an example of a man, of, of humanitarianism and, and what have you. So do check out the book. Jonathan, this is uh, fascinating. Congratulations on the book, man. Thanks a lot, Mark. Great talking to you. Likewise, good talking to you too. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe. And wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park